0: This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week, we're joined by Alan Rusbridger, editor-in-chief of The Guardian, and a keen amateur pianist, whose book, Play It Again, recounts how he learned Chopin's ballad number one during a year bookended by WikiLeaks and the News of the World phone hacking scandal. Together with NYPL's Paul Holdengraber, Russ Bridger discusses music, the Pentagon Papers, and why he always carries a destroyed government hard drive in his breast pocket. Thank you. There is a line in Leonard Bernstein um, which appeals to me enormously as it pertains, I think, to your work and to the challenge you have put forth to yourself in learning the ballade number one and we'll get to what that challenge was. Perhaps this line will help you unpack this challenge you put forward to yourself. He says, to achieve great things, two things are needed, a plan and not quite enough time.
1: Uh, that sounds about right. Um, for, for, for this talk to work or for this book to work, you have to understand two things. One, one is that the the first ballade is impossible. I, I, I can't see anybody in the audience, but if anybody's tried to play it and would like to put their hands up. Then, okay, nobody's tried. Oh, no, a few people have tried. And can you confirm it's very difficult? Yeah, okay, right. So it's, it's a <laughs> it's, it's, it, cause good pianist plays easy piece, would, would not be a good book. Um, bad, bad, bad pianist plays impossible piece. Um, uh, so it, it was a sort of ridiculous thing to try, and as you as you suggest i didn 't have enough time but that was almost that was almost the point of the book because there are so many people who used used to play the piano or used to do this or this, and, and, and usually it 's the biggest regret of their life or one of the biggest regrets <laughs> of their life that they stopped, uh, and usually their excuse for not starting again is they didn 't have time so The book is is partly about having a a fairly crazy life, editing a newspaper during a particularly crazy period, and yet finding time to tackle this impossible piece of music.
0: Why though the choice of
1: something quite as mad? (laughs) I I now look back and think, it really was insane, um, because it's so hard. Um, and uh, that's not just me saying it. During, during the course of, of writing this book, I, uh, it's one of the privileges of being a journalist. You can be completely impudent and ring up anybody you like. So um, You can I'm be completely impudent. Um, so I, I rang up a lot of very great pianists. I went to see them and people as disparate as... Daniel Barenboim and Murray Pariah and Emmanuel Axe. This, this is a piece they fear, uh, chief, chiefly because it's, it's, it's sort of, it, it all gets out of control. Um, and so uh, the fact that, 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 that these really, really, really good pianists fear this piece would, would, would put you off, except that I was on a, a, a piano camp, a piano course in France, Um, which I've been doing for the last seven or eight years. And someone like me, a a, a man called Gary, um, played this piece on the last day. And he was no better than me. Uh, And that made me realize it was possible. Um, And then I was just intrigued in a sort of kind of journalistic way, the way you might be, how somebody made this table, Um, how, how it was done. So it began as a sort of exercising curiosity and then the greatness of the piece pulled me into it. You,
0: you, you, you speak in the book of all these pianists you went to speak to, Marie Pariah, Alfred Brendel, Daniel Barenboim, Emmanuel Axe, Condoleezza Rice you went to speak to also. <coughs> she, so can wh- mm-hmm. she
1: can play it. Well,
0: so she can play it. Why so did you, you go and speak yeah. to her? I mean, did you see... Well, I was,
1: I was interested... I was interested in someone else who I, I had a busy read. life. I had a, quite a busy life. She was, she was involved in a lot of wars. Um, <laughs> um, um, uh, but at the same time as being involved in a lot of wars, she would find time to play chamber music once a month. Um, and I thought, well, that's rather admirable. And actually, we sat down and had a lovely discussion about the piano. Not war.
0: All right. (laughs) What did you actually hope to, what kind of counsel did you hope to get from these various pianists like Murray Pariah and Emmanuel Axe? Did you feel that they they could enlighten you about how to play it or how to understand it better or that you had made an ill choice in choosing it?
1: Well, I, I realized in the the writing of it and in in trying to play this piece, that on a, on a microscopic level, that this is, this is what is involved in being a great musician, that they, they lead this, this this solitary life of constant repetition, play it again. uh, And it's a highly technical thing in which you have to almost disintegrate a piece and work out what the the, the, technological prob- the technical problems are that, you, that, that, that you're trying to solve. Uh, and so I had some insight into what a pianist has to do. And you sit down with someone like Murray Pariah, who was just I mean, extremely generous in giving me time, but, but fascinating in... He, he went through the whole piece telling the story of it, because he has a story for for every piece of music he plays. So it's about love, this bit's about exile, this bit's about revolution. And that was interesting to see a pianist framing, how a pianist frames the arch of a piece. And then we went right back to the beginning and he described the musical structure. Uh, And then he went right back to the beginning again and told me how to play it. so it was just real, and, and, but his account of it was completely different from um, Barenboim. It was completely different from uh, Richard Goode. Um, so it was just fascinating to compare my amateur attempt on this piece with what a proper pianist would do. And Pariah
0: mentioned that the piece had a narrative and that narrative must have spoken to you as he described it the fact that it was, in some way,
1: about, as you said just now, about revolution. Well, he... For, for those of you who know the piece, and if you, if you don't know the piece we're talking about it, it it's, it's the music is, that is in the Polanski film of, of the pianist, it's just the piece mm. the, uh, that Spielmann, who's been hiding in, in the attic, plays to the, uh, to the Nazi in order to save his life. Um, it's not actually the piece he played in his book. Um, that was an invention of Polanski, but, but the reason Polanski, I think, chose this piece is because it's immediately, um, uh, it's immediately powerful. Uh, and at the end of it, uh, the end of all the four ballads, they, uh, they, um, they, they descend or ascend into fury. Uh, And Murray Pariah's image, there are these sweeping scales at the end of the the first ballade, um, which just end in silence. And he said that was like bodies rising out of the grave. He he really thought this was a description of the end of the world. Um, And that's such a powerful uh, metaphor for, for what is on the page. And I think it's partly why the pianists fear this piece, because once you get to that coda, it almost plays you, it, it takes you over and you have a decision about whether you're going to surrender yourself to the music or, or try and keep control of it.
0: Quickly, a few, a few more comments about, about the musical aspect of this book of yours. It, do you think that this choice at the age of 56 of putting forward to yourself this challenge in some way corresponds to a midlife crisis. (laughs) Um, And I I, I think of it particularly in the way you, you frame it by using an incredible quotation I'd like to read of Carl Jung, where Carl Jung says a human being would certainly not grow to be 70 or 80 years old if this longevity had no meaning for the species to which he belongs. The afternoon of human life must also have a significance of its own and cannot be merely a pitiful appendage of life's mourning.
1: Yeah, well... I th- I th- <laughs> I mean, as midlife crises go, it was a fairly harmless one. Um, <laughs> I, I can think of, I can think of um, worse things you could do. Um, um, but I think, I think that's right. I, I think it's. I'm terribly interested in the creativity that you have, because most people at school play or, or dance or act or paint uh, or, or play music. Uh, and then, kind of, life overtakes, doesn't it? You, you know, we, we, we plunge ourselves into things that seem more, more important, more vital or uh, more necessary. Uh, and then I think there is a moment in, in mid-life where that creativity that we've ignored resurfaces. And I felt it very powerfully in my late 40s, my, my early 50s. Uh, and that's the point at which, after a 25-year gap, uh, I went back to playing the piano.
0: And you, and you felt that, precisely in the, in the Bernstein mode, the, the shortness of time and putting a limitation to the amount of practice you could have, 20 minutes a day, would permit you to somehow master the piece after a year.
1: Yeah, it did. <laughs> it took me 18 months, um, because life was a bit busier. You know, it was, it, There was WikiLeaks going on, there was this story about phone hacking, um, so there was a... a, a <laughs> There were tsunamis. The whole financial infrastructure of the world was collapsing. So there was—it <laughs> was not like there was nothing going on in my life um, uh, in the day job. Um, so it, it took me longer than, and 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 the piece was harder. Um, but it, it, there was a more general point, which—and I don't know if this this is true of whether people in the audience um, recognize this—but but I sort of thought. I've always thought, there are all these things I'm going to do when I retire. And there's all these Dickens novels I haven't yet read. Um, Middlemarch, I've never read Middlemarch. Um, uh, and I was going to learn, relearn to play the piano. And then you realize, you know, you're 56. Why wait till you're 65 to, to it do It won't these get things. better. It's not going to get any better. And you'll have 35 years of missing technique. Uh, uh, so why not start now? Um, and th- that comes to the question of h- how do you find the time? And, and, you know, my answer was just to get up half an hour earlier in the morning. Um, but I, I made it almost religious that I would find the time. And in moments of great stress, I found it helped. I found it... I was going to ask the you, play did, did, did yeah. that help you um, with your day job, as it were? It, it, it did. Um, I mean, d- during the course, the, the, my, my other great fear was that... Uh, I wasn't gonna be able to remember or memorize music because uh, I never have. I've never been able to memorize a note. I can remember music, but I can't memorize it. Uh, And so you also ask yourself at the age of 56, is your brain too old? Um, So I went to see neuroscientists and I said, you know, it's my brain too old? Tell, tell, me, tell, tell me the worst, Doctor. Um, uh, and the good news is that your brain is not too old at 56. It, uh, the, this, the plasticity of a brain can, it, is, is very good. Um, so I, I learnt how to memorise music. And I was also interested in... Well, whether there was a, sort of a, a scientific explanation... whether the chemistry of the brain is altered... by doing something like playing the piano. Uh, The answer's no, Um, but it feels like it. It feels uh, uh, as though having that 20 minutes carved out... just prepares you. And and, and in some way, uh, I felt less stressed at the end of the day... if I'd done my 20 minutes and if I'd missed out my 20 minutes... I felt more stressed.
0: And you you, you spend a fair amount of time in, in the book... talking about your lack of memory and the fact that for this piece in particular, not being able to memorize it makes it even more impossible because of the movement of both hands.
1: Yeah, I mean that, that, that bit that we, the, we came in on with, with, with Rubinstein playing. So the, what's happening in that passage, there are huge chords in the right hand and things going like that in the left hand. Um, and then you get those crazy scales that go like that. Um, uh, and you have to look at one hand or the other. Uh, it doesn't really m- matter match which you look at, but, but if you're going to be looking at the sheet of music, it's all going to go horribly wrong. Um, and so therefore you have to memorize it so that you can, you can look at your hands. And that was just something I had never, I, I can sight read, but I've never memorized. A and music. Alan,
0: uh, less people believe that you, you can't play it, you actually can. Well, I can now. Yes. You can yeah, now yeah. <laughs> and I'd like us to take a, a listen to you right. playing the very beginning. It's very you. great. Um, you were going to say something.
1: Tell me. Were you going to say something? Well, I was going to say, you know, the art, the art will fade just before it gets difficult. The pianist in the audience will, will understand. It, yeah.
0: <laughs> what effect does it make for you to, to hear yourself play?
1: Well, the, the, there's a bit of me that that does look back on this as a uh, um, it, in slight astonishment that I did that I did manage. Are you to do in it. disbelief? So I haven't listened to that. That 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 was that was my final performance. That was my sort of bit where I I played it in public because I knew some people wouldn't believe it unless I did it. Um, uh, uh, so I haven't I haven't listened to that since. So it's it's very. I think it's very impressive, isn't it? I think they do. So <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Um, just before
0: coming downstairs here, I took you to the special collections, and one of our fine curators, mm. Bill Stingone, showed you some impressive papers, mm. uh, the Pentagon papers. And I want you to tell me and tell us how you reacted to it, and if you see any parallels between mm. the Pentagon papers and some of the stories The Guardian has broken over the last few years?
1: Mm. Well, it, it was ter- I, I didn't know this was going to happen, um, uh, but Paul took me up and uh, the, the New York Times Library is uh, here on the New York Times archive. And uh, the, the, there was a, a, a series of, of correspondence around the publication of the Pentagon Papers I want to ask if, if Max Frankel is here, did, did he manage to make it? No. Um, so Max Frankel was, was the executive editor of the New York Times... at the t- uh, who, who nursed through the, the lawsuit. Um, uh, and I've been in correspondence with him over, over the Edward Snowden uh, matter. Um, and it was just remarkable reading... the correspondence uh, around the very, very brave stance that New York Times took in one thousand nine hundred and seventy two over the publication of the Pentagon Papers uh, because it it mirrors so much the 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 internal discussions uh, and the challenges that we have had over the the Snowden material, uh, which I think is a a comparable publishing uh, event and that now including the new york times uh, and that that was done in the face of uh, you know, real government menace uh, and and criminal menace, um, uh, and it was a very brave thing to do. Um, so it was it was it was it was moving to to see these 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 letters laid laid forth about the spirit of, of teamwork and the the, the 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 public importance of what the Times was doing then, uh, uh, which I think you know, as I say, is, is Comparable. I, I, I make no claims for, for, for the Guardian's role, but the, the material is of, of comparable importance. Can
0: you say a little bit more about in what way it's comparable, and in what way the challenges seem similar?
1: Well, it's, I mean, at, at the most basic level, it's, it's a vast spill of secrets, um, uh, and the Snowden spill of secrets is bigger uh, bigger than the the the, the um, Pentagon Papers. I mean, it's it's a, it's a Uh, And in a sense, um, it's about a matter of, of, I think, equally high um, public importance. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg, um, uh, the the leaker of the Pentagon Papers, has said as much himself. Because it's about, to me, it's about very profound things about uh, the, the, the nature of of potentially putting entire populations under a form of, of surveillance. Uh, and it's about everybody in this room who believes they are secure in using... Uh, uh, the internet for banking or their medical records or for email. Uh, and the degree to which that, that is a well-based trust. Uh, which takes you into very profound questions about the integ- integri- integrity of the, of the internet itself. Uh, and there are so many issues of, of, of balancing privacy and security that, that are engaged by this uh, archive of material um, that it feels to me a, a very, very important matter, which is, which is why the, the public debate in this country has been so welcome.
0: Take us back, if you, if you would, to how The Guardian came to collaborate with Julian Assange?
1: Well, um, my, my uh, very brilliant reporter on The, on the, on the Guardian, Nick Davis, who, who did the phone hacking story, which was a you know three-year, very lonely story. Um, and his theory is that the most important stories in a newspaper are never on the front page. Um, I think it betrays a basic contempt for editors that's probably well-merited. <laughs> so he believes editors can't spot in- interesting stories. Um, and uh, on page seven of The Guardian, one day he spotted a story that he thought was... should have been the front page splash, which was there was a man on the run with uh, an enormous leak, which you know, then was the biggest leak of, of material from, from inside... Uh, the US government, straight military. Uh, and he couldn't understand why nobody was interested in the fact that this man was out there with a backpack on his shoulders. And so he tracked him down and persuaded him that he should uh, give the material to the Guardian, which he did. Were you, Was the
0: Guardian worried of collaborating with him?
1: Well, I think... Because uh, there was some fear yeah, involved yeah.
0: and some ambivalence, to say the least.
1: Well, at... I mean, the, the reporters in the room will know that there's never a perfect source. There's, there's never a, you, you know, archbishops don't leak your documents, generally. Um, uh, so, so you're usually acting... You're usually dealing with people who have um, you know, differing characteristics... or differing motivations and are often less than spotlessly pure people. Um, and, you know, Assange is intensely interesting figure because he's so hard to categorize. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't the source. Um, uh, we know Chelsea Manning was the source, uh, but, but he, he was a kind of source, source, quasi source, quasi publisher, quasi activist, um, cryptographer, hacker. So he was all, all these things. Um, uh, and, and so, it, you know, it was a complicated thing to understand and to work with. And do you see
0: WikiLeaks as
1: a turning point in journalism? Well, I, th- I think it's an in- intensely interesting idea. Um, and and uh, uh, the same thing has happened in WikiLeaks that happened with Snowden, um, which I think um, uh, um, America ought to be really proud of, but also ought to think a little harder about, which is... There Amer- are, America should be proud of. Well, I, what, what I mean by that is that there are extremely high, high protection for, for free speech in this country. You know, the First Amendment uh, in a written constitution. Um, and I know that the journalists in the room... Uh, deplore certain things that Obama has done about pursuing whistleblowers. Um, I I deplore those too. But nevertheless, there are very great protections for free speech in this country. Uh, And what we did with WikiLeaks was to, by insisting that the New York Times came in, because I thought we would be prevented from publishing in in the UK, uh, as we were uh, with with, uh, Edward Snowden. Uh, I wanted to get the New York Times involved in order to have, in order to root this material in the highest standards of free speech. And I do think that's a really interesting model for the future. If you live in China, Iran, in Turkey at the moment where uh, journalists are having real problems in Russia. And we know that we would welcome whistleblowers in these countries uh, uh, and that would be important. And, And using the Guardian as a hinge to publish the material, but with very high protection, I, I think is a terribly important model for the future. Yeah, you, th- you, you have a line,
0: um, you said to Bill Keller, the then editor of the New York Times, we've got the flash drive, you've got the First Amendment.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you see, I think... I, I think you, you do have to, you know, of course I can see in real life, uh, you have to prosecute Chelsea Manning. You have to prosecute um, Edward Snowden. You know, Snowden knows that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, sending out a signal, that if you if you lock somebody up for 60 years, that's a pretty powerful signal about what you think about whistleblowers uh, and the public interest involved. And, and, and as, as far as I can see in American public opinion at the moment, it's sort of, um, it's slightly pro-Snowden, if I can use that as shorthand for the issues that he's raising. <clears throat> and, and I would guess the same would be true with, with Manning. So you, you've got things where the, the, the balance of public interest is, is fairly evenly weighed. Uh, and I, I think to reward the person who brings this stuff into the public r- r- domain by locking them up for 60 years, sends an odd signal uh, to people who might be thinking about leaking the Iranian nuclear secrets or, or, or things, bad things that are happening in, in China. So I think you know, it, you know, it's, it's because these issues engage universal human rights that they're so interesting. You say
0: the, the balance is slightly perhaps more in favor now of, of Snowden... Well, um, I,
1: I don't say of Snowden himself, but, but of, but of the, the, issue. the issue, I think people can see now. Uh, and the more we publish, the more people can see uh, the, the issues and that they are real issues. Uh, and everybody now says that from the president of the United States down. You know, it, it's become a cliche that everyone's saying, well, maybe, maybe this debate is necessary and we, maybe we should have had this debate earlier, but you can't have a debate unless somebody gives you the information uh, and if you try and criminalize the people who give you the information, see the Pentagon Papers, then uh, you're not going to have these kind of debates. So um, there are conflicting interests. Uh, and I think one of the interesting you know, questions for society is whether the old way of, of looking at this very narrowly through a national security prism and having uh, a, a essentially national security oversight, or secret court oversight, is sufficient uh, to deal with the very, very big issues that are engaged. You, you have lived though um, with...
0: with the fear of not being able to do your job properly, uh, with great fear, people telling you You've had the debate now. Now stop having fun. Give us the documents. Smash them.
1: Yeah, but there, I there mean was literally. Literally. Those, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh,
0: bring us back to that. I mean, I read it, but bring us back to that
1: moment. Well, there was a moment. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, this is why the Pentagon Papers upstairs are uh, so, so it, relevant, it, it evocative, because. Um, since 1972, and that's why that court case was so important. uh, I think it is is inconceivable that uh, a a government would try to use prior restraint against a news organisation. That that is, to stop something from coming out. Um, uh, In in Britain, uh, what happened was that the the government came to see me to say, that's enough, exactly that, you've had your debate. And I just don't think it's for the state to, to say when a debate is over. I can, I can see the, the anxieties about security and I'm, I'm not I'm blind to that. But I think for um, the state to say that, that, that you've had your debate, now destroy it... Um, ...was something that I think Americans would find it hard, which is why, why I'm here. It's why I'm in New York, why we're reporting from New York. Even more than we were before, which is why I found shelter with the New York Times, uh, and we had this, you know, the most bizarre event in my journalistic life when uh, we were in the basement of the Guardian uh, with power drills um, at- attacking the. This is this is the hard drive of a of a. Uh, of a MacBook Pro once, once it's been destroyed to British government standards. Um, uh, and you, you carry that around with you? I with? do. Well, it's a kind of reminder. In fact, I've, I've got boxes of them. I've offered to, uh, I was going to give one to the New York Public Library. I hope to. you to, do. <laughs> um, no, but uh, um, quite quite literally. Well, I think it's a sort of artifact. It, it yeah. is. It's, it's about, that's a sort of symbol of of the role of the state versus the role of the journalist. Um, and, and one, obviously, for understandable reasons, wants to close down debate, although it says it doesn't. Um, uh, and I think the role of the journalist is to responsibly open up the debate. Um, and, and that's what happened in Britain. Um, and I don't think that's what would happen in America. So carried around with me. Uh, and yet w- what is happening so, so often is
0: that journalists are, are turning against journalists. Um, so you have for instance um, Jeffrey Toobin saying Snowden is a grandiose narcissist who belongs in prison. Um, David Gregory to Glenn Greenwald saying, to the extent that you have aided and abetted Snowden even in his current movements, why shouldn't you, Mr.
1: Greenwald, be charged
0: with a crime?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I find it absolutely extraordinary that, that uh, I mean, I, I, would, I would really love to hear from these journalists who, if they had been given this material, would have um, refused to read it or would have handed it back. I would just—I would love to meet a journalist who would do that. Um, just ask them why they're a journalist. You know, why, why not choose another profession? Um, um, you know, it, 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 it defies belief that any—anyone, anyone, any journalist would not have read this material uh, and then would have not seen the public importance. We might differ at the margins about what we would publish, but I think—I think what's engaged here, which is a, which is a, another interesting issue, is these people who, uh, I think, want to narrow, very narrowly define what a journalist is. Um, and that, in a way, is, is a theme of this book, because it comes back to the theme of amateur versus professional. Right. So, you know, the reality is, I- in this digital revolution that we're living through, um, everybody can publish. Um, so everybody in this room is, is, a, is a publisher of some form, uh, and um, and many many people could do things that look like journalism. Um, and this is an important subject because it, it it's at the heart of of who gets protection under shield laws. But but uh, so so people look at Glen Greenwald and say. Oh, he's not a proper, proper journalist. He's a blogger. He's a, he's a, he's a, he can't be a journalist because he's a blogger. Or he can't be a journalist because he has opinions. Uh, or he can't be a journalist because he gets angry on Twitter, um, which he sometimes does. Um, or, or he's approaching t- he's he's this from an ideological point of view. Um, and so they want to close down the, 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 the permission to be a journalist. Uh, and so I think some people you know, just, just don't want to um, uh, allow that... But I, mean still, I mean, obviously, most of this reporting has been done in conjunction with people who are recognizably journalists on the staff of The Guardian. Um, but I think some people react to this notion of this, this um, a- a- anarchy of, of, of publishing today uh, and want to get back into a sort of... 20th century, 19th century model of, of, of a limited number of people who had permission to be journalists.
0: And yet, to some extent, at the Guardian you want to encourage open journalism. You want to encourage people to, to join the discourse even if they're not professional journalists. Is that correct?
1: Completely. Um,
0: because So how, isn't there, <laughs> isn't there some kind of a tension there?
1: Well, uh, I, I, I think it's very... Oh, it would be very odd, and I, it, it, it's very odd for a news organization to try and wall itself off from this tide of information, some of which, some of which is rubbish, maybe most of it's rubbish, but, but, but not all of it is rubbish. Um, uh, Twitter is a, is a formidable uh, news breaking machine, which, which is. Um, you love Twitter. Often, I can tell that. This is news to you, or, or, or not? <laughs> Maybe you don't spend your life on Twitter. Um, I'm guessing. Um, uh, I um, spend
0: too much time on it. You I spend think, too much time. I think I do already. Right. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, you'll know. You'll know its its capabilities. Um, and and for journalists to sort of draw up their skirts and say, well, we're journalists. Your Twitter um, seems to be silly. Um, and through Twitter, you are drawn into a world of, of people who are experts, but aren't journalists. And some of them are obsessives. Um, so th- the more you can incorporate the best of what's going on there, you just give a better account of the world, which is what journalism should be doing. And it's, you know, the, the reason, you know, we hired Glenn Greenwald, which I can't imagine many mainstream uh, American news organizations doing because they would be suspicious of him and they would not regard themselves as open. But we were open to him. Uh, Snowden read him and thought, there is somebody who is highly knowledgeable about this area. I feel safe with him because I feel he understands the issues I'm writing about. Uh, and uh, th- that's how The Guardian got the story. And, you know, People keep saying, well, why didn't The New York Times get the story and why didn't... They? I mean, the Washington Post, to be fair, did, did get some of the story, um, and, and has, has done it very well. But, but, but that, the main relationship has been with, with Greenwald, um, and I think that's not an accident.
0: There's been a fair amount of debate around Greenwald in terms of what, it, what makes a journalist and what doesn't. And there's this comment by Margaret Sullivan in the New York Times where she says, so who's a journalist? For now I'll offer the admittedly partial definition. A real journalist is one who understands at a cellular level and doesn't shy away from the adversarial relationship between...